What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner, and today I'm going to be reacting to Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity. He had a recent video called I Quit or something like that. And um, so I want to take a look at that. I agree with a lot of what he says. He was a very valuable resource during uh, early days of coronavirus. He's a trained PhD pathologist, and he has a lot of common sense. At least that's how he approaches a lot of his problems. Um, and Peak Prosperity has been around a long time. I think I was exposed to him 15 or even 20 years ago through Peak Prosperity uh, and through gold and silver. Uh, and then I read a book of his about 10 years ago. Um, but anyway, he, he's he's a good resource, good guy. Um, and I agree with a lot of what he says. And none of this is going to be trying to be malicious or mean or anything. I'm just... I'm trying to have a, a grown-up conversation and maybe he can, you know, if he sees this and he wants to interview me or he wants to come on the show or whatever, he's more than welcome. But, uh, you know, this is what we're going to do. And I, I, I doubt that he's going to be uh, care at all that people are using his content. Of course, I'll link it down in the show notes and I'm using this under fair use. But anyway, up on the screen here, you see the Bitcoin Fundamentals Report issue number 192. This was last week's issue. And uh, full of great stuff. You guys can subscribe for free by going to the subscribe button up here in the top right. And signing up for the free tier, then you get access to the weekly newsletter. And if you want to support me making more economics type content on Bitcoin and macro and all sorts of things, um, that would be awesome if you did so. I do have a part-time gig that I'm doing with Bitcoin Magazine. They're a great company and great people over there. I want to expand that relationship. But uh, in the meantime, you know, I want to grow my own brand and my own uh, follower followership and community and all that stuff. So uh, if you guys go there, you can support me making more content. And I appreciate it. It took me a long time to hit 20,000 followers on Twitter. You know, I stuck at like 19,000 for a year and a half, two years. Um, but now I've done that. And if I could only get 5% of those people to subscribe to $5 a month, then, uh, you know, I'm, uh, get working my way to have, making this be a full-time job. So if you want to see more content, uh, go, sub, go, uh, follow me and subscribe, uh, at bitcoinandmarkets.com. This issue, I talk about, uh, El Salvador versus the El Salvador assembly that they had with central bankers versus Davos. Um, then I do a big section on the Bitcoin price and different charts, chart patterns, chart indicators, CME gaps, all that kind of stuff. Um, also, talk about some news from the traditional markets, thinking that the stock market is close to bottoming as well. So that can influence Bitcoin. Uh, I have a big mining section where I tear into the Cambridge research piece that came out recently. The U.S. has now, they found about 37%, 38% of the global hash rate. Uh, China, surprisingly, still has 21%. I'm a little bit skeptical of that number. I don't know their methodology for finding that out, but uh, I did link to this in the, the newsletter and wrote about it a little bit. Um, so big section on mining and the network. And then I have a section also on altcoins and CBDCs, talking about Ethereum, uh, Luna, Terra again, and the Ripple lawsuit. So you guys can go over there and 
subscribe, bitcoinandmarkets.com. But right now, let's jump into this Chris Martinson, Peak Prosperity, I Give Up is the title of the video. And of course, I will link it in the show notes. I'm going to try to let it run and talk over, maybe talk, pause it a lot and you know, uh, talk when I need to. But this is kind of a longer piece, it's about 40, 50 minutes worth of content here that I'm going to try to get through. I do have it sped up a little bit, but let, let's go. As we carry on here, I have to talk about why I'm so concerned at this point in time and why I've given up on a good outcome. I think we got harder times before we get back to the easier times. Now, my whole website, it was described. It, it's Where? So what, right off the bat, he, he says harder times before, better times. Where and by how much? Okay. It, Ukraine, yes. Going to have harder times before, better times. And it's going to be very bad. Eastern Europe, probably pretty bad. China, probably pretty bad. U.S., not so bad. Right. So where and how is it going to get worse and by how much? Uh, th those are the important metrics I would like to see. Been named. It was named Peak Prosperity back in 2009. I wrote something back then and produced something called The Crash Course. It's both a book. It's a video series. And it's 28 chapters now after its update in 2014. It's going to get another update this year. And what it lays out is a systems level view that connects economy, energy, environment into one place, because we have to see them all in one place. Now you can't just squeeze on the energy balloon without, oops, something happening over here in the environment. And you can't just squeeze on the environment over here without something popping up in the economy. Oops. And, and they're all connected. And so to understand how the plumbing between those three big systems is really critical if you want to know where the world is going and you want to have less anxiety, because you know what's anxious making? Not knowing what's happening. Okay. So this is a central planner's fallacy, um, thinking you know what's going to be the consequence of your interventions. And, um, uh, you know, the economy is a complex system. Nature is a complex system. Our subjective values are a complex system. Our culture is a complex system. It's complex system upon complex system. And so it's not as easy as having just a few areas of the economy and you pull, push on this balloon here and then it bulges over here and you push on this and it bulges over here. It's a fractal system. So if you push here, you're going to have a fractal of possibilities, a fractals of consequences that come off of there. And so that is what is not uh, predictable. And you are guaranteed, there's one guarantee when you're trying to predict the future is that you're wrong. Um, now, some people can be more right and some people can be more wrong. And we hope that capital gets allocated to the people that are more right uh, that is the best way to go about it. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's continue. Happening or the reason for it. Now I might be wrong, but I'm not confused. I'm pretty sure I have an explanatory framework that at least gives us a starting point for having a reasonable adult conversation about why we're here at this moment in history and where we're going. And it's not a U.S. story versus China story. It's a human species story where humans are on this planet, 8 billion people, only so many resources. Listen, we can talk about it all we want. No, absolutely. It's a China story and a U.S. story. It's a geographic story. Some places are more wealthy in natural resources. The U.S. economy is not only the largest, it is the most self-sufficient of the major economies, right? And so it's not a mistake that the U.S. is the largest economy. It's not a mistake. It's that way. It's geographically determined that that's going to happen. We should debate it. We should be talking about this. So this story is incredibly important. If you understand the story this way, I think you have a good chance of understanding where the puck is going to be, right? So why, why 2030? Why, why, why was the WEF? Why, is, uh, so, why are so many people in positions of senior leadership so concerned about 
where we should be in 2030. And why did why are they proposing radical overhauls to our culture, our values, our ownership models? Those are big overhauls, right? Why why all of a sudden? What's the urgency? What's the ticking clock in this story to them? I'll tell you, it's the they're losing. The global Marxists are losing. The Davos crowd, they're losing. That includes um, the elite in the United States, like Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton, the neocons, uh, the people in Europe, and they're losing. And we see this as a rise of populism, a rise of nationalism, um, which is more dangerous in certain parts of the world, uh, less so dangerous about in the United States, uh, which we'll get into here. But um, we see this with Brexit, with Trump, with uh, Orban, uh, with Putin. Um, th- this, these are populist revolutions, and they threaten the very essence of global Marxism and globalism. Um, globalism is inherently contradictory. Um, and that was, Marx actually struggled with that. And that's what, where he came up with his idea. So um, I, I listened to a podcast, New Discourses uh, with James Lindsay. I'll link to that down in the show notes about this uh, recent episode he had on Marxism and the inherent contradictions. So um, Marx identified that capital is something that makes copies of itself pretty much, right? It, it is um, unequally distributed, and people that have capital can make more capital. People without capital get left out of that whole, whole uh, game. So the contradiction, however, is that eventually that stops. Eventually you can't build more capital, and it has an ending. So that's a contradiction. Either capital is something that can make more of itself, or that capital has a finite limitation. Those are two separate ideas. Um, And that's where Marxism springs up in a contradiction. It comes whole-bodied from a contradiction. And we see this contradiction carried forward in things like critical race theory, in radical um, gender studies, um, and what else? Climate, all this stuff, you know, um, that climate is... The climate argument is that we are uh, in an exponential growth, but that that exponential growth has a limit, right? So those are contradictory ideas. Either it's growing exponentially or it's limited. There's there's two different things. And all of these different kind of branches of Marxism are self-contradictory and they're self-defeating as well. They will destroy each other eventually. Um, But I think that that what these people see is the inevitable unraveling of their systems. Uh, Liberalism, well, not necessarily liberalism, but populism is winning over this global Marxism. And so they are flailing and lashing out. You know, a drowning man will reach and drown his savior, right? Because they just lash out at everything and pull everything under with them. That is what these Marxists are doing right now. Uh, And that's why we've seen an increase in the tempo of what they're doing. But let's see what Chris has to say. Wander with me over to the big world of resources, and I think you'll see what the big ticking clock is. And so rather than my model for this is that this crew of people, rather than being honest with us all, and here's what honesty would sound like for this group to me. They would say, listen, I know we and all my buddies and I and my, my father, my grandfather, my mother, my grandmother, I know... So his ticking time clock is oil, and he'll get into that here. He's a peak oil guy. We've been in charge through this whole cycle, and I know we should have done something, probably starting back around Earth Day in 1970 that, that would have set us on a different path. We didn't. 
now things are going to be a little tough. Now, but we want two things out of this uh, now that we've explained that to you. That's the central we, planning We would like fallacy. to stay in power because, hey, that's what we would want. And uh, two, um, we don't want to lose any of our privileges in this story. We'd like to maintain the same relative privilege structure that we've had up to this point in time. You're going to have to take cold showers and eat bugs. Are we cool? Right? That would be a version of honesty in this story. And Okay, but it's not just them, right? They're, throughout history, um, powerful people have done this, okay? They, they want to con- keep their privilege. They want to keep their, their place. They want to keep their relative uh, position in the hierarchy of society, of course. But then there's also the massive unwashed <laughs> that uh, want to be controlled, and they want to trust the, what the uh, people are doing. They, they uh, want to believe in a higher power that somebody has their back, and yes, these people are in power, and so they will just look the other way, hoping and praying that they are being saved. Um, so it's not just the powerful people. It's about 50% of the population that wants to be told what to do and wants this control. At least they don't want to think too hard about it, right? Um, the, the battle is between the 10 or 20% of thinking individuals out there um, against the elites, against the global Marxists. So the top 10 to 20% of thinking individuals need to revolt, and then they will be the source of the truth for the 50% that are looking for uh, direction. And they're not going to be directed, like, literally by this new class of thinking people, but uh, they are going to be led by culture. They're going to be led by um, ethics and that kind of stuff. Uh, One of the problems, too, with all of the hyper... uh, radical ideologies that are going on right now um, is that they, you know, they grow in a time of plenty. So they're kind of a spoiled ideology. And it's no wonder that like Marxism came about with the Industrial Revolution because the Industrial Revolution was, even back in the 1850s through the 1900, you know, late uh, 19th century, was um, a time of plenty relative to the rest of humanity rest of history and so it's a spoiled ideology um if you aren't working you have time to sit there and complain uh so that that's that's what drives it uh from a fundamental level is just um having a, a lot of excess and abundance um so anyways let's continue so we don't have that. And, and so instead we get things like, you know, um, having to go into an extreme two year set of lockdowns and increasingly crazy gyrations around a pandemic virus that has a ninety nine point nine eight percent survival rate. Uh, we have to endure things like assaults uh, on our basic truth making apparatus and sense making. And that's, so that's what we get. So if you follow along here, I'm going to give you just one piece of this today, which is the energy part of this story. Now, my my PhD is in biological science. I, as biologist, what are you always studying in biology? Well, if looked at from one way, the study of biology is fundamentally always and everywhere about flows of energy, right? The sun cascades down, it comes into the chloroplast in the leaf flows, tissue, and flows the photon comes down through, and the leaf captures that and turns carbon dioxide into sugar. It's a miracle, right? That is fundamentally the flow of energy. And then when a caterpillar comes along and eats that leaf, it's really eating what the sun came with, brought to the earth and was captured by the plant. And 
Yeah, but there's always external or externalities, right? Um, so yes, that plant takes in carbon dioxide and creates sugar, but it also creates oxygen, right? So the externality for those early algae or whatever uh, in the oceans of the world was that they made an oxygen atmosphere. Now, that was a positive externality for other life forms to go out there and use oxygen. So they found a way to be symbiotic with each other. It wasn't a waste. Energy isn't wasted. Energy is just transformed into something else that has another externality. Somebody else benefits from it. Some, some other organism benefits from it. Right. And I'm sure Chris would agree that with uh, the conservation of energy, you're not going to have a new system get new energy. That energy is always in the system. Um, so let's continue. And then the bird eats the caterpillar. So this is all just all of nature is just that flow of energy from A to B. And, and, and when an organism has more energy available to it, it can grow into that energy source. And when it has less energy available to it, it's going to shrink into that energy availability. That's the whole dynamic of populations. All right. So there, there is a problem with this is that it's more of an equality or identity. So yes, as there's, I mean, you have to say available energy, right? So it, ha it can't be unavailable energy. It can't be just energy is there. Uh, it has to be specifically available energy. Well, what makes it available uh, is that it can be exploited for growth. And so uh, it's, it's an identity. It's the same thing. By saying available energy, that's what population is, is dependent on because it's the same thing. If the population wasn't dependent on a certain amount of energy, then it wouldn't be available. See what I mean? Uh, so... Uh, and plus, in economics, there's no uh, independent variable. All variables in economics are dependent on other variables. It's complex system upon complex system upon complex system, and everything is dependent on everything else. All right, let's continue. Whether it's caribou on an island, whether it's rabbits in a field or an ecosystem, whether it's smelt in the ocean, little fish, whatever it is, everywhere and always the population is determined by the amount of energy available to it, which is its food for almost all, well, all organisms. Humans have figured out something clever. Available. We figured out how to take ancient sunlight in the form of coal, natural gas, and principally oil. That ancient sunlight is hundreds of millions of years of ancient sunlight all captured, and we've managed to figure out how to turn that into food. So when I eat food and it's there on my plate, I went down to a grocery store. We have Safeways here, big wise. You go to, go to the store and it's full of stuff. And you fill up your shopping cart and you bring it home and you eat it. But if you chase down, say, say I had a, a Ritz cracker on my plate, right? Just eating one Ritz cracker. Say there's 10 calories in that. When you chase down how many calories of energy were involved in making those 10 calories of, of cracker show up on my plate, you discover that there was typically around 100 calories of fossil fuels baked into that Ritz cracker. So that when I'm eating... Okay, I looked this up. I researched this after watching this the first time, and that's not the case. Um, the average is about 7 to 10 calories per calorie on your plate uh, so it's an order of magnitude less of an issue or a point that he's trying to make here but uh, the point I will make is that it's not wasted there there's an externality somewhere right and what I would say is upon looking into this 
uh, just on cursory research is that, uh, for example, in the past, we had a livestock was doing all the work, right? We had oxen and um, uh, horses to pull the plows. Uh, we used their manure. We did all of this stuff. But when you look into the efficiency of animals to produce food, a cow, which is pretty much the most efficient livestock out there, and we'll get into some of the numbers here in a minute when he talks about his pigs. Um, but the efficiency of livestock, it cows take about 36 calories input to equal one calorie of output for food. That's pretty, pretty inefficient, if you ask me, right? So in the past, perhaps the inefficiency was hidden and the externalities were hidden in the livestock. And today that has been transferred somewhat into crops. Okay, so we don't know. Maybe the uh, efficiency of livestock has been drastically reduced with feeding it corn, which is not good, using antibiotics, which is not necessarily good either, but perhaps it makes the input to output ratio 10 to one with cattle and now 10 to one with crops instead of, two, uh, instead of being a surplus on crops and being a way drag on with livestock, perhaps it's now roughly equal we don't know but we can say there is no wasted energy so if it takes us that amount to burn fossil fuels to get a calorie onto your plate well that burning of energy is making pollution which is actually food for the plants food for other plants like trees and things so uh, i watched this documentary a couple decades ago about greening a planet earth you know there's more trees on earth today i think than any other time um so it's it's one of those things that um the there's always these externalities and we don't know where those externalities are going for what organisms that's why it's talking about available energy you have to say available energy or energy that's available you can't just say energy period because then you know you you won't get your perfect identity relationship it I'm only getting 10 calories, but I've actually consumed, as it were, 100 calories. This is upside down compared to all of human history up to about 1930. Farming was a net positive energy exercise. Farmers would put a calorie of energy into the field, 10 would come out. That is now upside down, and we call it Maybe. normal. It's a little I weird, seen those, historically that unusual, and I would suggest it's a cul-de-sac, a little side thing that we've done for a while. It's a lot of fun, gave us a lot of prosperity, but we are now at the stage where this whole story that you and I and our parents and our grandparents grew up in is now shifting. And knowing the nature... That's true, but it's not... Uh, I mean, the, the market is a self-healing uh, mechanism. There is no market failure. There's no such thing as a market failure. Uh, the, the market will heal itself. And I don't even like saying free market, really, because... Everything is a market participant. Everything is a market participant. So governments, of course, they exist in an anarchic relationship with each other. Um, and all market participants, everything is a market participant. So there is no such thing as a market failure. Uh, we've gone down this cul-de-sac, he called it, uh, because the market took us there. Um, 
And it's a central planner fallacy to think that you know better, that you could have done better. Your choices in the past would have had, had externalities and had um, unintended consequences. And it's just as likely we'd be worse off than better off today. So uh, you can't make that central planner fallacy. All, all you can do is say what is right for you, right? Well, that's all you can say of that shift and knowing that it's not personal but also it's being done in a fairly unmanaged way gives you extraordinary insight into where things are going to go and more importantly what you can do about that because information without action i agree with is this nearly interesting i want to give you this information with the hopes that you'll be inspired to maybe see where things are going and, and take steps to become resilient in your life and, and that's what we've done here right if, if we widened the camera out and, and went onto this property here you'd see the gardens we're planting the cows we just got uh, three pigs were just delivered today by Aaron um, and uh, so we have three brand new little pigs running around and and we're doing what we can to begin to have control over the most primal source of energy for any organism and that's its food so okay well that that's admirable and I would love to get to a place where you know, I had a large garden. I, I have started doing the garden stuff, and I'd like to have uh, chickens and be more, uh, you know, sustainable or self-sufficient uh, in my own life. So that is admirable. But he talked about pigs there. Well, pigs are about the least efficient animals that you can have. Like I said about um, the cows, uh, about 36 to 1. Pigs are way worse than that. Um, I, I, I don't have numbers on this right, right offhand, but um, I have seen um, information in the past where uh, they're asking people about which is the best, you know, um, most efficient animal, uh, livestock to have for the, the, the production. And they said it's cows by far because they are pretty much, you can just put them on the pasture and move them every now and then, and they don't wreck stuff. They just go about chewing their cud all day long and that's that's what they do um but pigs they wreck your fence they you have to move them a lot more because they tear up the ground um they, they can be used for different things i guess if you want to clear land but you know they're much more energy to, um heavy they're uh they're much less efficient with with the way that they produce food per unit of input for for hogs they're even worse than chickens so it went uh livestock then chicken or sorry it went cows then chickens and then pigs so if he wanted to be the most sustainable um he would look into having only cattle he said he had a couple cattle or something so um that's that's what he he wouldn't get pigs because pigs are very inefficient so that the whole conclusion of all this crazy sort of stuff and charts and everything that I'm going to talk to you about results in me being very excited to have three new pigs on the property. So let me let me connect those connect those dots, and it begins here. OPEC, the uh, everybody knows about OPEC. Um, so it turns out in the United States, uh, senators in in their infinite having never produced anything and built nothing sort of wisdom, have come along and they've decided that they're going to pass or hurry continue to move along some legislation that's called the NOPEC. Relations. You see, they look clever names. <laughs> All right. So last week, the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee approved the NOPEC bill, leading to pushback from both within and outside the U.S. OPEC's most influential energy ministers, pushing back themselves, warned the bill could send oil prices soaring by 200, maybe 300 percent. By the way, that's like game over for the economy, for a lot of jobs. That's like lights out, doesn't work anymore. Yeah, I agree. And that's why it won't happen. <laughs> 
So to think that the oil can just rise up 200, 300% um, and crash everything uh, doesn't, doesn't appreciate the adaptability of not only the economy, but of humans. So our demand will shift, you know, a demand is not steady. There is demand in some things that are steady. And I guess he would argue that uh, energy or oil is, is a, one of these sticky things in the economy where our demand is sticky. I'm thinking of, um, you know, f uh, food and, and water mainly, but shelter as well. But there are uh, some sticky things in the economy. Now, oil is not necessarily one of them, at least 200, 300% moves because um, we will drive less. We're already seeing that. Uh, they were talking about, um, I saw some statistic about, I think it was Q1 US oil demand. And usually, I think it's about 18 million barrels a day. I could be wrong on that, but it was, I know it was 2 million less than estimates. 2 million barrels a day less. Now, how can that be if our demand is sticky, right? It can't be. We will drive less. We will make one trip to the store instead of two trips a week. We will um, cut down on our consumption in general to, you know, and so if you're ordering less Amazon or you're ordering, uh, you're going shopping less, um, you're going to be having less demand for oil. I even saw something about Amazon's trying to get rid of 10, what is it, 10 million square feet of warehouse or something like that. Uh, some ungodly amount of warehouse space because Amazon is hurting right now because people are pulling back, they're cutting back. And so that is a huge shift in demand. So culture is adaptable. Our behavior is adaptable. All these things are adaptable. So if you're saying that the, the oil supply uh, or the, you know, yeah, oil supply is going to be cut dramatically and the price is going to increase two or 300%. That is an estimate based off of no change in demand and also no change in supply that we don't, that is unforeseen, right? Like if we just continue this trend, which is guaranteed to fail, we'll never continue a trend. Uh, we'll always deviate from that trend, at least up or down. So um, th these are a lot of assumptions are baked into this. Now, the U.S. itself is almost self-sufficient on oil, and he gets into this later in a um, negative way. But I, I get into it on a positive way, that the U.S. is relatively, can be relatively self-sufficient in everything. Everything. And the world is who needs the U.S. to buy their stuff, right? But if our culture shifts to more made in America, it shifts to drill, baby, drill at home, uh, those types of things, we don't need the rest of the world nearly as much. And we won't want the, US, the, the rest of the world nearly as much. And so the rest of the world won't have customers. And you need customers to to sustain all these emerging markets and to sustain China and all this. I mean, what happens if we just said, oh, we're not going to buy stuff from China anymore? You know, like that, that probably won't happen, but it could happen on a marginal basis, you know, 20% this year, 20% every year decrease in demand of products out of China, something like that. So, um, no, I, I, I think this is fear mongering. Two or 300% is fear mongering. Let's continue. 
Uh, here's what this uh, great article by uh, Svetana uh, in oilprice.com, great place I visit all the time, writing here, quote, if the U.S. passes the NOPEC bill, a bill designed to pave the way for lawsuits against OPEC members for market manipulation, the oil market could face even more chaos. So, uh, market manipulation. So they're accusing the OPEC members of coming together and deciding to set prices for their key products. So if you are Saudi Arabia or you're Kuwait, uh, United Arab Emirates, you have sand and you have some oil. And really, that's like it. And so the, the idea that they would come. Yeah, so they need oil customers. Together to get the best prices they could for their one and only major product is not surprising. What is surprising is that the number one market manipulator out there is the United States and its defective SEC regulatory regime and the way Wall Street runs around things. So if you watch the markets carefully, you'll see manipulation happening in them all the time. Nobody says boo when it manipulates in a way that funnels money into the power structure of the U.S. and flows that up into, oh, say, members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Nobody says anything about that. But the U.S., let's be clear, manipulates markets all the time. Commodity markets, silver, gold, uh, the um, U.S. Federal Reserve is in the business of manipulating the price of money, interest rates, and probably a lot more because um, uh, they, they have their the New York Fed, which is the prime prime. Uh, mover and shaker within the U.S. Federal Reserve System. The New York Fed has its has its trading floor. Why, why does the Fed need a trading floor? It's located in Aurora, Illinois, where the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is, which is where they do all of the prime leveraged trading that moves markets all over the place. That's where futures and options are traded on stocks, bonds, commodities, things like that. And for some reason, the U.S. Federal Reserve is right there, located there. It's just one of those things. So, Okay, so... Um... He said a lot there that the manipulation by Saudi Arabia and stuff, of course, they make they have oil and sand, and that's why they need customers for their oil, right? Um, and they'll go to the place that can pay the most, and I'll tell you what, the U.S. per capita can pay the most. <laughs> so that that's, that, I don't understand why they would want to sell it to other people. Plus, you want to do business with people, and it's all relative, right? So, of course, the U.S. isn't perfect, it's far from perfect, but relatively, it's better than doing business with the Chinese, right? So the the, the communists over there. Uh, so on a relative basis, and it might not be big, say, you might argue that it's not that big of a difference, but there is a difference, okay? Relative to China, the U.S. is a better place to do business. Um, we can see that by just the comparative size of capital markets, uh, anything. Uh, we can see that it's it's just not a good place to do business over there. I mean, if you do per capita GDP, China is still a lower middle income country. You know, they're, they're not that big of an economy uh, per capita. But anyways, um, the he also said about Aurora, Illinois. I didn't know that, that they had a trading desk in Aurora, Illinois. Um, but, you know, they don't trade... CME stuff, uh, he'll say, well, they don't tell you they trade it, but they're, they're fairly transparent. And I used to think that there was, you know, shadow stuff going on. And I do think there's something maybe behind the plunge protection team, um, because that's documented, right? That's not secret and shadowy. That's legit actually exists. Um, but this trading commodity, the, the, the fed doesn't trade commodities uh so but they do manipulate markets okay everybody manipulates markets it's not i mean when i go down to the 
uh, grocery store and I buy an apple, I'm manipulating the market for apples and the market for gas because I drove there or whatever, right? Uh, I'm manipulating the market for everything at every turn that I do. You cannot proceed in the market without changing supply and demand in that marketplace. Everything that you do is market manipulation. And so it's no wonder to say the largest economy in the world is responsible for the most manipulation. I mean, that, that's another identity equality thing. That is just how the world is. And it, it sucks that we had to say that it's manipulation, but really just market activity, all market activity manipulates the market. Um, you know, they might say that it's unfair manipulation or something like that, but, you know, all's fair in love and war. This is big boy time. Uh, there is no such thing as fair in this world. So anyway, let's continue. So at any rate, uh, the, the United States is going to spank OPEC for manipulating markets is probably not going to be all that well received by OPEC. Just a guess. Uh, so? And so we already know, what was it, a month and a half ago? Biden made a call, picks up the bat phone in the White House. They dial out for Mohammed bin, bin Salman uh, in the crown prince of Saudi Arabia saying he wanted to take a call. He's like, hey, Biden wanted to call him Mohammed and say, any chance you could pump more oil for us, that'd be, that'd be swell. That call was not picked up or received. Another call was placed. It wasn't picked up or received. Nobody nope. in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia was interested in having that call. That's true. Maybe they were too busy. Nope. Turns out they had, uh, would then pick up uh, and called Putin and President Xi out of China. So the kingdom of Saudi Arabia is already busy forming its new alliances to align itself with this. Well, Putin's an OPEC plus, or uh, Russia's an OPEC plus member. That's the plus in OPEC plus. Um, but yeah, also, no one wants to talk to Biden. He's a globalist. And we're not talking about uh, the globalist world. The globalist world is dying. That's why they're flailing so much. Um, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the actual economy. This next future that's coming. This next 10 or 20 years is going to be all critical. A lot. And I bet that, uh, you know, uh, the uh, CEO of BP can call up um, Ben Salman any day of the week. Same with Exxon or whatever. So, yeah, it's just a matter of who's calling him. It, it's it's embarrassing, but it it doesn't mean anything other than like the globalists are losing. A lot of amazing stuff's going to happen by 2030. Power centers are going to shift, and he who has the oil has the power in this story because everything else is a derivative of the energy you have available. So this available again he had to make the uh you know caveat that it has to be available energy so th this is also a thing is that um it's not about he who has the commodities it's he who has the flow of commodities because commodities are by nature consumable that's why money shifted to gold in the past and will shift to shift to bitcoin in the future because um you can't base your, or money that is based on consumables is not legitimate or it doesn't last very long. It doesn't work very well. And that's one of these arguments recently you've hear, heard like um, backing the Russian ruble with oil. What a horrible, horrible, horrible idea. Okay, oil, first off, oil is not backing the ruble. It would be the flow of oil that would be backing the ruble because you consume what happens when you consume that oil well you have to have more oil to back it right so you're constantly backing it with the flow of oil and he'll come he'll show here in a minute 
the dire straits of the Russian oil industry. Um, so that is just a stupid thing. Plus, I mean, pipelines are sitting ducks for terrorism. They're sitting ducks for bombings. Um, you know, you don't want to base your money on something that can be exploded, the, the flow of oil. And the oil market is very volatile, right? It's not unheard of to see it going from 120 down to 50 or even zero, uh, back up to 120. That, that's extremely, extremely volatile of an asset to use to back your currency. It's just ridiculously, it's a ridiculous thought to say that that is a legitimate option for these countries is to back their currency off the flow of oil. I mean, they might do it, but they would be idiotic to do it. Idiotic. They would be damning their own country to, to poverty. No pick bill that I see them coming up with here. Bad timing, kind of awkward, and it's, it's just, it's attempting to bully or push or otherwise force a different set of behaviors on a group of people who maybe aren't that interested in even picking up the phone call, let alone being bullied at this point in time. So law of unintended consequences. By the way, you can't call it unintended if you can. He also talked about the shift of global power centers. Um, I'm not too worried because, you know, the history of the world is, tells us these types of facts. Um, you know, if there is an area on the planet that has never had a thriving metropolis, you're, you're pretty good, it's a pretty good bet to say that it will never have a thriving metropolis at that place, um, especially in the Eurasian area. If you're talking about maybe uh, like the New World here, um, North and South America, I, you could maybe get away with saying that, but um, not in Eurasia. All right. If there's never been a thriving metropolis in a place, most likely it's not going to happen, at least in our lifetimes. Um, and it's definitely can't be centrally planned. There's a reason why there was no city there. It's the same thing. If, if a country didn't grow certain agricultural items or they've never been an agricultural powerhouse or they always have been an agricultural powerhouse, whatever the case, there is a reason for that. You can't just snap your fingers and make something come out differently. Uh, there's a reason why Africa is usually underdeveloped relative to the rest of the world because it's freaking expensive to do work, to do, to do business there, to make infrastructure. Think about this, like um, a bridge in the United States, you could build it for say $10 million and it will last 50 years. Now you build that same bridge in Africa, it's going to cost you $100 million and it's going to last 10 years. So where are you going to invest your money in infrastructure? And where is the money going to go the longest towards infrastructure? So Africa is just plagued by being very uneconomical to develop. Plain and simple. Let's continue. Predict what's going to happen next. I can predict that a NOPEC bill, which is going to levy and put civil and possibly even criminal sanctions on members of other sovereign nations because of actions that the United States doesn't like, opens the doorway for them to do that in kind in return. It opens the doorway for them to feel a little salty about the whole relationship. It opens Go the ahead. doorway for people to maybe say, oh, is that how you're going to be? We're just going to tear this contract up. Sure, right? go for it. Um, and we're going to go and find new trading partners. So that's what I see coming on with that NOPEC. We're going to find new trading partners. Uh, again, there's a reason why the U.S. is the richest economy or the biggest economy and 
you know, uh, not the richest people per capita, but the largest economy with the most amount of investment capital, the largest capital markets, uh, uh, yada, 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 all these things. And the best currency, you know, the, the, at least the widest, widest used currency, there's a reason for that. Go ahead and tear up your contract with the United States. You know, we won't buy oil from you. We won't buy your goods from China. I'm, imagine that. Imagine if we don't buy goods from China. Their economy would implode and we just wouldn't have a few shiny gizmos. Bill, so um, by the way, whether or not we uh, go forward with that NOPEC bill, there's already severe damage happening to Russia's ability to produce oil. And so what do I mean by severe damage? Again, another great article here by Svetana here on May 9th. Uh, titled The Inevitable Decline of Russia's Oil Industry. This is big news. You need to know about this. You should be paying attention to this. This is bigger news than is given airwaves and bandwidth in Western press, but it really deserves to be talked about. Writing here, first bullet point is the European Union prepares to place an embargo on some sort of Russian oil imports. Russia will be unable to redirect most of that oil elsewhere. Pivoting to Asia will require massive infrastructure investments that would cause Russia's production and revenue to plunge, at least for a period of time. And in the meantime, a lack of storage in Russia would mean the country will have to reduce production. Here's the thing about oil. It comes flooding out of the ground under pressure if you're in a new reservoir, which uh, Russia has a lot like that. And when it comes flooding out, it's got to go somewhere. If you run out of places, physical places to put it, there's no more big tanks or tankers floating on the ocean. When you run out of places to put it, you then have to dial back. You turn the stopcock on that wellhead and you shut that field down you don't just turn it on and off like a garden hose i want more i want less it's very complicated reservoir hydrology and dynamics are very complicated if you do it in the wrong way you permanently damage the reservoir so it has to be done very carefully so there's a whole process to it because there's usually multiple wells very complex 3d geology has been mapped out and so if you can't get this oil you can't put it anywhere yeah this is the case i've done some research on this and um i've been talking about this now for a while um, a couple months in that I expect I had expected the Russian oil production to decline more. It's declined about 10%, maybe less. And even their own estimates are saying 17% by the end of the year, but it's very hard to get data. You know, um, that's why central plant, one reason why central plant doesn't work is because you don't have, uh, enough available data and you're biased by your opinions and your, um, subjective valuations of things too so the the most recent stuff i could find uh last week when i was researching it was uh from february and those were estimates estimates so in february it already had gone down like five percent and one of the big things yes was the withdrawing of the western oil companies so exxon Mobil and shell bp whatever uh taking their experts out and so all of their oil facilities that are in like Siberia and the tundra, these are very um, fussy wells and they will close up and be unusable and they'll need to be redrilled. And most of that expertise is from Western companies. So if they have to shut these wells down, they're not opening them back up for years. But yes, I've, I, and I also said that you can't just shift your oil to China, right? Like, I have, um, I'm doing 2 million barrels a day to Europe and now I want to just, instead I'm going to do 2 million barrels a day to China and they can soak up whatever I want to send them. That's not how this works. Okay. They had to find different ways to move it and transport it. Uh, they had to find vessels that were willing to come and pick it up and then deliver it. Um, all sorts of things. Um, so 
it wasn't as easy as just redirecting. So I did expect the Russian oil production to drop pretty badly. Um, and that's, again, that goes into not backing your, your currency by the flow of a commodity, of a volatile commodity. It's just ridiculous. Or you got you to start shutting down that production. So when that production gets shut down, uh, here's what happens. So in yellow, continuing on here, Russia's oil production is already already falling and will continue dropping in the coming months and years as Moscow will not be able to redirect to China and India all the volumes it's losing in the West. Force this the EU embargo will have forced Russia to reduce oil production and Russia simply doesn't have the storage. Now, here's why that matters. Let me get rid of this little thing right here. I don't need that blank headline. So um, if we look here, oh, I had the wrong thing. All right. So this is Russia's oil production over time. And notice here that when they had this big peak back here, uh, they had a 13 million barrel per day production. And then the Soviet Union collapsed. And there was a lot of turmoil. And what happened was Russia's production fell pretty precipitously. So it went from this period here of really learning how to uh, pump this. Okay, a few things about this chart because he was spending a couple minutes on it. Uh, first thing is there seems to be something off because he's labeled it as 13 billion million barrels per day. Uh, but the chart only goes up to about 11.2 or 3. Uh, so that's a pretty big deviation. And then on the downside, it said 6.5, and it, it dropped all the way down to 6. And then also recently, I saw in 2021, their production was over 11 million. I think it was like 11.2 or 3, 4, or something like that. And um, this chart is under 10. And maybe that has to do with oil versus gas. I'm not sure. But since his labels are wrong, according to this chart, I assume that the chart is just wrong. Now, I'm not saying that the entire story that it's telling is wrong. I'm just saying that it's questionable. Um, also, uh, we don't know what the Soviet numbers are. Okay. Soviet Union, communist country, they lie just like chinese numbers they lie we don't know what the production was uh, we can estimate right and maybe go off their numbers and look at how they estimated their methodology and then make a different determination but i would i would call into question those numbers i mean just look at the increase it's a straight line pretty much from 1940 to 1970 it's like a straight line that's a little fishy right so okay let's continue up and get a lot of things going and moving and then all of a sudden it fell off again so oops i got the wrong one yeah this one so you see that that big upswing right there and then they hit this peak of production sort of got it back they fell down here now here's the thing to notice they haven't gotten back after decade after decade after decade russia is not back to its former peak it'll never get back to that former peak in fact last year russia was telling everybody that even without these sanctions before any of the sanction stuff came up they were already telling the world hey We've kind of hit a peak of production here. So this probably was the peak right about here, and it was going to tail off slowly, but now we're about to see another drop-off. And again, the idea is the drop-off will be fairly steep, but... There's also another part of this is their demography. Um, their demography has pretty much followed this. Uh, it's horrible. It's a very, very bad situation over there in Russia. So yeah, I wouldn't expect them to get back to their all-time highs, um, and I don't expect their economy to get back to all-time highs, but that's why it's important. My very, very first question in this this uh, video or this podcast was to ask where, how, and how much, because, yeah, Russia is a different story than the United States.
getting back is going to be a long, slow affair, and it may never get back to where it was in the first place. So that's a big deal. The, the world doesn't have spare capacity right now. There's no extra fields out there. The whole oil industry has failed fundamentally, not failed, but it couldn't or didn't or failed to, depending on how you look at it, invest in new production, deep water, ultra deep water, you name it. Uh, it's just not there. Now, we could bring it on slowly and maybe they'll open up the Arctic or the coasts or maybe Africa will find some more. But those projects are several years in the future. Even if today a huge field was discovered, a big one, many billions of barrels, ginormous, a huge elephant field was discovered, say, off the shore of the United States or maybe in some other part of the world, it would still be five years minimum before that was flowing at a reasonable output. It just takes time. You have to put a lot of wells in. You have to attach a bunch of infrastructure. It's going to require some processing. You have to build pipelines. A lot of things have to happen. So if Russia's oil gets taken out of the game now. Yeah, so he called a multi-billion barrel oil field an elephant oil field. What if I were to tell you there's an oil field that's trillions of barrels? We're going to go into it. Now, and it is being taken out of the game right now. There's there's no there's no thing left to make up that difference. There's no. Okay, so well, let me get off of this place we can face. point to. Uh, you have... Oh boy. Uh oh. Okay, so make sure this is still going. All right, so um, it, you know his assumption is that this is a market failure, right? We failed the plan, and so there's no spare capacity, which I disagree with, and we'll go through that. Um. Remember, he's a peak oil guy. Um, I think that's where peak prosperity came from. But um, he, I disagree with this market failure idea. If the amount of oil being produced is coming down or uh, whatever, to me that says that the demand is coming down. I, I, I tend to believe that the market is smarter than I am. Uh, <laughs> The complex system is represented to us in prices and all the production numbers are always estimates and they could be more or less accurate depending on which country is reporting them, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But um, the, if there is this dearth of oil capacity, then that's the market telling us something. And most likely that's telling us that the demand is slowing down. So let's say the world pre-COVID demanded 100 million barrels of oil a day. Uh, I can see the world dropping to 75. And then you have to ask, where is that going to come from? Well, it's probably not going to come from U.S. demand uh, it, because we can support most of our demand. It's going to come from emerging markets. It's going to come from China. It's going to come from Eastern Europe. It's going to come from a lot of these different places um, Middle East and uh, not and Africa, but not necessarily from the United States. That's why you have to ask where, how, and how much. Um, but again, he's a peak oil guy, and so he thinks this is a market failure when it absolutely is not. There is no such thing as market failure. Markets are adaptable. If one part of the market goes bad, it will route around that. It's adaptable. It evolves. Uh, not only the market, but our culture, our behaviors. Everything adapts and moves. Nature is that way. There is no catastrophic failure in nature. Okay, let's go. 
Northwest Shale isn't going to be the, the swing fill on this for a lot of reasons. It's all very complicated. So what does all this mean? U.S. Shale, this mean? we'll get well, into first that. First up, you know, let's just imagine that, that... Well, here, let me get into this first. So um, this is world oil reserves. And you can see pretty much every year from 1980 to roughly 2020, um, oil reserves went up. So that's the amount of known oil in the ground, right? That's exploitable. And it goes up every year, even though we consume 75 or 100 million barrels a day. The oil reserves continue to go up year after year after year. We find more and more and more oil. And he's going to talk about shale here in a second. So let me just quickly go over some U.S. stuff. So here's the U.S. production. You can see when we started tapping into shale, when there was a, a technological advance in how to get shale, um, it around 2010 or so it took off and in less than 10 years we almost nearly tripled our oil production and yes we had a big setback with covid but it is bouncing back so uh, i think the peak was right around 13 million barrels and now we're sitting about 11.5 million barrels and it's coming back up slowly but surely even with the biden globalists Marxists fighting that, right? Like they have to humble everybody. Marxism always never brings people up, right? It always brings people down to equalize people. So they have to bring the U.S. economy and U.S. oil production down in order to humble the United States. So that's what they're trying to do. That's what the Biden administration is trying to do on behalf of these globalist Davos Marxist types. Um, but then let's take a look at shale oil. So this is, I know Wikipedia is not a best uh, reference, but this is a place to get an introduction to an idea. And let's read what they have here about shale oil. 2016 conservative estimate set the total world resources for oil shale equivalent to yield to 6.5, sorry, 6.05 trillion barrels of shale oil. Trillion. Trillion. With the largest resource deposits in the United States, accounting for more than 80% of world total resources. 80% of the 6.05 trillion barrels are in the United States. For comparison, at the same time, the world's proven oil reserves, not shale, were estimated at 1.6 trillion. So that's what? Three times as much shale oil. More than three times as much shale oil. And that's just what we've discovered. Remember, I said every year our reserves go up. Every year our reserves of oil go up. There is no such thing as peak oil. Um, let's go down here and get a little bit more detail. Um, of course, I'll link to this in the show notes. More, more recent studies by the United States Geological Survey estimate that the resource in the United States may be bigger than previously estimated. According to these studies, three, large, three largest oil deposits, all part of the Green River Formation, the Piancean Basin, 1.5 trillion barrels. The Great Green River Basin, 1.4 trillion barrels. And the Unita Basin is 1.3 trillion barrels uh, in shale oil reserves. In 2010, it was estimated by the World Energy Council that the United States resource could be equal to 3.7 uh, trillion barrels. So that was before the most recent stuff, uh, which has brought it up to, I think, over four, but... Uh, in 2016, their estimation was that the resource may even consist of up to 6 trillion barrels of shale oil. 6 trillion. And right now, in the entire world, 
there is only 1.6 of known reserves, which I told you go up every year. So peak oil, no. Shale oil flash in the pan, no. Okay, the U.S. is going to dominate the future of oil production. And you have to humble that, right? That's why Biden is doing all these things with the, the oil industry, trying to humble that. And you can add in there uh, Canada, you know, Alberta production is huge, is absolutely huge. So, uh, no, you, there is plenty of oil out there, plenty, plenty of oil for hundreds and hundreds of years. Even at current uh, usage, there's over 100 years of oil in the United States alone. And that's not counting the rest of the world. The stuff that Russia is, A, at peak. B, it's about to hit a, a production decline because, C, it has nowhere to put that oil right now. So, D, it's going to have a permanently or at least a multi-year suppressed oil output. So, the world isn't going to have the oil it needs. Now, this is something I covered extensively. The world isn't going to have the oil it needs. That's what he said. Uh, that is completely false. Extensively in this thing called the crash course. There's a link to it down there. It's all free. Just click on it. Do you want to know about how it takes three big parts? It talks about money, money creation, the economy, it talks about energy, energy economics, things like that. We're going to talk about a little piece of that today. Then it talks about the environment. Uh, and then, you know, what should you do and what does this all add up to? So today we're just going to be looking at some stuff that's found in chapter 19. And here's some basic ideas. This is one of the most important charts I have. If you, if you had, if you were only granted one chart to understand all of economics as best you could, for me, it'd be this chart. So on that left, that's funny because that's what they say about GDP. GDP is the king of all economic indicators. And that's part of this chart. Taxes, what we're looking at there is the primary energy consumed by the world. So this is primary energy, not batteries or stored energy, primary energy. What is that? Hydropower, nuclear power, natural gas, coal, oil, all put into some sort of systems that utilize that energy. Maybe they're burned in combustion engines, maybe they're burned to make electricity and power plants, whatever it is. Primary energy, which I'll show you a chart of what that looks like, on the left or y-axis against the x-axis down here at the bottom, which is the real GDP of the world in trillions. Look how tight this is. Look at, look at this. Look at this. This is just a very straight line. It basically says, if you want more units of this down here, if you want more units of economy, you're going to, by definition, be consuming a fairly linear relationship, more units of energy. Oh boy, that's that's not what that says. Um, anytime you see in statistics something that, that that's this correlated like this, um, you have to question what they're measuring. And to me, this is uh, again about the same sort of thing as we said earlier with available energy and population. You have to put available energy in there, else energy to population wouldn't make sense, right? Uh, it has to be available energy, and that is by definition making it an identity. And when I, you see something straight line like this. Uh, this isn't natural. Um, this is an, an equality. These are the same thing. They're measuring the same thing. GDP is a bad measurement, but it's all we have. I, I read a book this uh, about a year ago about uh, China, and the is called Unrivaled by Michael Beckley. And he looked at GDP, and he said GDP is very um, misleading because... Uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't consider the cost per unit of GDP, right? So China, it costs China much more, probably 50% um, to 100% more in cost to produce the same amount of GDP as it does the United States. 
And that was one of my ding ding moments where like, oh my God, this is a gigantic bubble. How can they sustain this, right? Because if they're trying to grow their GDP, that means they're having to increase the amount of input so much to get the next dollar of GDP. It's not sustainable. And it's all based on credit. The largest credit bubble ever in the history of the world in China. So like, I was like, oh my God, this is going down. But no, this is measuring, this is measuring uh, an equality here. Uh, okay, let's continue. Energy is the economy. There's, if you took the energy away, the economy would go away. Same Available energy, right, Chris? Thing is, if I said, if we took the rabbits away, the fox population goes away. And if you take my food away, eventually I go away too. Um, so it's just, this is a very simple thing to understand. And of course you can see it. Whenever you look out into the world and you see all the cars and trains and ships and buses and planes going by, that's all economic activity. Or uh, you could look around the room you're in right now and try to find one thing you can look at that isn't there courtesy of oil directly or in the case of me as I eat oil or you because we eat oil literally as it were uh, in this story. Everything in your life is there because of the master resource, which is this stuff called oil. It's fairly easy to understand. Once you put that on, that's your energy goggles. Once you put those on, You'll get it. You'll, you'll start to see it that way. Like, like I'm that guy. Like when I get on an airplane, it has one to three million different components, right? Depending on the make of the airplane. They all have to work. Like if one little sensor's out, plane doesn't take off, right? They all work. And then you go from zero to a few hundred miles an hour just within a single runway and it take off. And it's just, mm, it's magic, right? So that amount of energy flowing through our economy allows it to do what it does. If, but let me be clear about this. If you take the energy away, the economy goes away. The unfortunate part is I can't tell you which part because the economy is what's called a complex system. Complex well, it's also just not the case here. Um, you can't, I mean, yes, short of like a solar flare or, you know, global thermonuclear war, <laughs> then you uh, aren't going to take away all of the energy. Um, if you take away... Um, 10% of the energy, you could still maintain the same standard of living generally if you have new innovations to make it more efficient. Um, you know, that's uh, one, one thing about the United States, you know, as we're onshoring or friendshoring our industry and we are producing more stuff here, um, most innovations happen on the factory floor, as they say. And so uh, there's going to be more innovation and you could have a single innovation a single invention that cuts the need, uh, energy needs of a certain process by 50%, almost overnight. I mean, he's talking about five years of production, whatever. Sometimes it takes that long, but sometimes it's very, very rapid. And um, that, can, that can happen. So uh, innovation can cut the need for energy. And usually in good times, what happens is then we can take that excess energy that's saved and spend it somewhere else, uh, do something else with it. Um, but in if, if we're in a scenario where we're just cutting energy, uh, total resources, um, then, and we get more efficient, it just means that our standard of living stays roughly the same. Um, now I understand there's a question with credit and credit needs to be expanding at all times or it's collapsing. Um, he uses the example of a shark must keep swimming or it dies something very similar to the credit market. But um, as a general rule, no, if you take energy away, you're not going to take all the energy away. You can take some of the energy away. And if you have uh, increase in efficiency, then 
you know, you can maintain the same sort of standard of living. And what's to say that's a bad thing anyway, right? We change our culture, we change our uh, demand profile, we change uh, all sorts of things in our economy. Uh, what, what's to say that's a bad thing? That's not. We, we all act in our own self-interest, or at least we should. Um, and we, uh, that means that what we now choose to do, or if we changed our behavior, what we then chose to do would be what's best for us at that time. Um, so there's nothing to say that it would be a bad outcome at all. It would be a good outcome. It would be a good outcome. It, again, it might be temporarily painful, but then that pain depends on where you live, how it is manifested, and how badly it's manifested. All of those questions are less so in the United States. Okay, let's continue. Complex systems have emergent behaviors. They, they don't have predictable behaviors. Yeah, I said as this. As clever as we've become, as powerful as AI, and as powerful as computers have become, we still lack the fundamental ability to predict complex systems. Okay, keep going, keep going. Um, let's get through this. It's just the nature of it. So... We can't predict what's going to happen. And by the way, human and, and society and culture is a complex system. So the culture yep. could make decisions, right? So when Easter Island, as the story goes, was busy collapsing, right? They burned up all of their resources to continue to produce giant stone heads that faced out to the ocean. That was what they considered to be important. Whether that's Maybe. true or not, apocryphal, we don't really know. But yeah. I just want the metaphor to ask the question, how were... It's also a bad metaphor because uh, they could have had like a five-year drought and they're on a tiny little island and they they starve, right? This it could be a natural disaster. It doesn't have to be that the humans used up all of their resources. Most of the time, that wouldn't be the case. Uh, you have to search the historical record probably pretty detailed to find something like that, even for an isolated population. It's normally going to be a natural disaster, not a man-made disaster. But um, uh, you cannot expand that and scale that idea that metaphor to the global economy it just doesn't work we're going to manage the energy descent is in some ways a cultural question manage? i don't know what our version of stoneheads is here in this culture like what's that thing we're not going to manage we it. will preserve at all cost like you don't need to well right down to the last tree so we can erect that last stonehead that's what we'll do what will that be for us like so we could decide right to subsidize war we can say, yeah, you know what? We like war. Let's subsidize war. That might be the thing we decide makes the most sense. Obviously, it makes the most sense to some people in my country. Like, let's just subsidize war. That's... I mean, okay, you can choose those things, right? And nobody's to say if that's a be good, uh, better use of that capital because we don't know what the unintended consequences are of the other choice that you would have chosen. But the... Um, but most likely, the economy will course correct in time. There, I don't know how you could say that, you know, we see this cliff. You know, well, no, how about not a cliff? Because those are harder, <laughs> harder to necessarily see. But I see this wall, and I'm speeding up into this wall. And that's the, the, these central planners. They're speeding up into this wall. You have to think that nature hasn't built in safety mechanisms to change this. Humans and the market are adaptable. They're, they evolve. They're self-healing and self-correcting, self-balancing. So some people might choose war, sure, but that will be corrected in the grand scheme of things. If the externalities are too much on one way, the market will heal itself.
It's not a scary thing. This is not a fatalistic problem of central planning. This is just the way the world works. And it's not fair. It's not fair. If you live in some place that, you know, you're going to be wrecked in the next decade, it's not fair, man. I'm sorry. You're going to get wrecked. That's all you can say. Uh, make the best of your life. <laughs> Same here. I mean, there's lots of things in my life that don't go the way I want them to. And it's not fair. But life is not fair. We're not talking about what's fair or good or just. We're talking about what is. I mean, the bunny will hate the hawk, right? And the hawk will eat, eat its guts. Land on it, kill it, eat its guts, and that's not fair. That's vicious. But that's nature. And guess what? Now the hawk can feed its babies. So there is always an externality. There's always a consequence. There's always a self-corrective mechanism. And to think that the, the economy, to think that the market, and to think that nature is just going to you know, go full on into a brick wall is naive. Or at least it's, it's not understanding free markets markets in general it's literally their top priority nothing else is a higher priority right we might decide to subsidize cheap coast-to-coast -coast flights because those are really important right but as we do that increasingly as energy comes into short supply we're going to be promoting one aspect of things while stealing from some other aspect it's a net it's a net zero game with losses now so if we advance one thing by definition we lose from somewhere else we can't have it all anymore it's not that world well, that's wrong. Um, you can always innovate and do better with the same amount of inputs, right? And so, yeah, you can have, thank you, you can have a uh, uh, net zero, but it's not because you can always innovate or do something differently or change your demand your demand profile, even the supply profile, you can change all of those things, right? And so it's not necessarily a net zero thing. Um, so that's wrong. I mean, instantly today, Yes, it, it, you would have to choose differently. But if, if you're talking about over time, the market sees things way before you do. Trust me, the market is way more complex than anybody can even hope to grasp 1% of it. And so uh, the market is way out in front of this. And it's already making those changes. It's been making, those, it's been making the changes needed for the last 10 years to fight what's coming in the next two Nothing happens overnight like this. Only natural disasters happen. And that's a discussion for another day, but there are uh, certain metrics that we can look at to predict natural disasters. We know where natural disasters happen and what type of natural disasters happen. So they're not wholly unpredictable, right? Um, okay, let's continue. We don't get to have this and one of those, like George W. Bush. Uh, I'll have a war and a tax cut, please, right? We don't get to do that anymore. We're now at the painful trade-off stage, but we have unserious leaders who haven't ever been out in the real world, apparently, who don't understand what a trade-off might be. So getting back to this, just meditate on this, right? Put this up on the wall, cross your legs, start saying ohm, right? Energy is the economy. And if this vaunted, what they call energy decoupling was happening, you would see this line depart and go flat like that. But we don't see that because we don't have any energy decoupling. You know why? Because this is a global chart. So the United States has a little bit more economy per unit of energy compared to a few decades ago because 
We outsourced all the energy expensive stuff to China. They do it for us. And then we import it and say, oh, look, we're getting more efficient. No, we're not. There's no efficiency on this chart. This chart is dead straight, even Steven, through every decade it's been running, which says there's a straight line. More economy is going to burn more energy. That's because they're the same thing. They're the same thing, Chris. That's a powerful statement. So um, let me hold on there. Uh, uh, Ryan, are there any, any comments or anything that, that relate to this that we should turn to before I plow on? Yeah, yeah, Joe. Yeah, Joe Potter says print more oil. Yeah, that's the one thing. The, well, it's one of many things the Fed can't do. But yeah, they're going to try, though. They're going to try. Um, yeah, and I think they already are to some extent in the sense that, Joe, I think they, they, they support the idea that if we can just control the narrative a little bit and print some oil futures and sell those into the market, maybe that will fix things. Um, but definitely, uh, no. Let's Fed go forward. Cannot. A snapshot. So this is just looking at in 2017. It's just graphing two things against each other. On the left axis, going up in the y-axis, uh, 2017, GDP. How much GDP did you have as a country? Every dot's a country. Along the x-axis, on the bottom, is a log scale of how much oil was consumed by that country. So this is log GDP going this way, and this is log of oil consumption going this way. And, oh, here's another straight line, a very nice, tight relationship. And so basically... Oh, another equality. I, I, I think I would call it an, ident an identity, where... One equals one, right? This is, these are the same thing. GDP is proportional to oil consumption. It's measuring the same thing. Basically, it says all the countries out here who are busy consuming more oil have larger economies because oil or energy is the economy. If you want to have more economy, by definition, you're going to be burning more energy. Okay, there he goes. He's, he just said it right there. Um, Oil consumption is the economy. Well, it is GDP. It's not the economy, right? It just is how we measure it. Um, there's lots of different ways that we can measure things. Um, I was in a discussion with uh, Christian CK on, from Bitcoin Magazine. I think it was on an episode of FedWatch. And I was saying, oh, GDP doesn't matter. All these other things don't matter. That They're all just bad measurements, yada, yada, yada. And he's like, well, what would be a good measurement and that that was took me by surprise i didn't really know how to answer I, I just went back to demographics demographics are a way to measure if an economy is healthy if the population is healthy if the population is um in uh, a good place right wealthy and if you plotted gdp versus um fertility rates, then we would see a, a relationship that means something. This relationship doesn't mean anything. It is the same thing. GDP and energy consumption are the same thing. They're meant to measure the same thing. And so that's why it's a straight line. Uh, it's not a surprise. Now, chart it against fertility rates, and then we're talking about something different, okay? The problem is... We don't have more energy at this point in time. We're hitting its bumpy plateau of a peak right now. This is what's coming between here, between 2020 and 2030. Peak That's oil. what's coming. Peak now, you think coming. the WEF didn't have access to this data? Of course they did. There are a lot of very serious people who have had access to this data. So the question is, if you know that you have an economy and a financial system that are constantly growing or the opposite collapsing right that that's that's our financial system it's either expanding or collapsing like it doesn't really have a steady state like can you imagine like that steady state where you know general motors does what it does and you know facebook does what it does 
and in 10 years, you look at them and they're still at the same level. They're steady state, right? They have the same amount of earnings. They're not growing, all that. That world, we, we don't have a financial system that rewards that. We have a financial system that kind of has, it's like a shark, has to keep swimming or dies, right? One of those sharks. So our financial system is either expanding or it's very unhappy and it's busy collapsing. That's, That's why true. people are so scared of these stock drawdowns and deflationary impulses and seeing things like um, all the financial asset classes get hit because the worry is that they are going to implode completely. Uh, so if you think, I like agree. me, that having a financial system driven by a system of money that's either expanding or collapsing is a bad idea, then we're in agreement. I think there are other money systems out there that we could get to, sidebar. But for now, it's pretty clear that if we go back yeah. to the slide, yeah, yeah. energy is the economy, period. But, but we can't get to those new forms of money. Hopefully he means Bitcoin and not gold, but he is a gold bug guy. Um, we can't get to that new type of money through central planning. It has to be a natural phenomenon, right? The market has to discover it and move that way. If it if you try to bet and you try to force it, you're gonna have, there's going to be unintended consequences and negative externalities. It's a really important point. It's obfuscated and obscured in our press all the time. I don't know why. It couldn't be simpler. Look at that. That's a straight line. Here's where the problem comes in. So I can hear you already. Like Chris, why is that a problem? It's a problem because yeah, why is that this problem? is. Remember, I talked about primary energy by source. What is the source? We, that first graph was in that source of energy. So here it is. This Let's is be it. careful here. This is looking at it from 1800 way over here on the left on the x-axis on up through 2019. And it starts with traditional biomass down here. So what's that? Well, that's peat, wood, dung, things like that, right? Traditional biomass. And then we have coal, oil, natural gas here in the purple, and... Then on top of that, little smears up here. So nu nuclear and hydro are not smears. They're actually pretty substantial, those two. Um, and then those last three things are modern biofuels is this next one here in this lighter screen. And then other and renewables up there, you can barely resolve them. So whenever you read an article, and I read them all the time, it's like solar and wind supplied 100% of Costa Rica's electricity. That's true for Costa Rica with its awesome geology and geography, which permit things like uh, geo geothermal and, and uh, uh uh, hydropower and things like that but for the rest of the world this is look at this look at this that's that's 80 percent of our consumption right there are those three things gas oil coal and that's part one part two is notice even here that this whole line right here which is like this exponentially increasing line right here that is the line that we all grew up on to us it, it, that steep wow. upward sloping line of always more energy is our flat terrain we've grown all right, so he has to be careful here. The reason why I said that was uh, because it gets into a Malthusian argument. Uh, let me bring up a, this is a population curve during roughly that same period. It starts at 1700, but we just think of 1800, it was roughly 1 billion people on the planet. And now we're sitting about 8 billion, right? So if you go back to his, his chart here, uh, about half of this can be explained of this increase in energy consumption can be explained by the increase in population, right? So maybe our per capita energy consumption is twice what it was uh, back in 1800 or maybe three times, but it's not, uh, you know, most of this can be explained by population. Now, another thing as well is as the population got bigger and we demanded more energy at relatively good prices then we found new sources of energy we found coal we found oil natural gas we started doing more with hydro and nuclear right uh 
So this, to me, is a championship of the free market. This is not a uh, a chart that says, oh my God, this is horrible. This is a chart that says, oh look, as our demand goes up, we find new sources of energy. So we're not near peak oil, and we're not near uh, the economy finding what new energy sources, finding new ways to use existing energy sources to be more efficient with energy. All these things can add up. None of these, like I look at this, I say, damn, look at that beautiful economy. And he looks at this and says, uh-oh, <laughs> right? So that's why it's, it's a dangerously a Malthusian argument and a eugenicist argument and an argument for either A, a lower standard of living or um, B, massive uh, population declines, right? Uh, because most of this chart can be explained by population increases up on it we're like that's how the world works we always have more energy and that's just how it's going to be and that's not how it's going to be we're, we you happen to be alive at this really incredible moment in history when well this is about to change and it is changing it was earth shattering to me that in 2018 china came out and said we're at peak oil over here and since then they've been on an absolute tear importing they are by far the number one oil importer the united states right around the same time was busy convincing itself that it was saudi america and that it was even talking about oh we're going to be an oil export nation again and we were convincing ourselves with what turned out to be which i pointed out at the time these were ridiculous fantasies the yeah but it came true <laughs> you pointed it out at the time but uh you were wrong because it came true uh i think i showed this chart earlier well it's been an hour and a half now i don't know what i showed uh but you know, this is Saudi America, and this is just getting started, okay? We have 6 trillion barrels of shale oil under the United States. This is just getting started, people. Um, so what he was saying back here, that we're convincing ourselves we're Saudi America, and then the number uh, oil doubled, and we became a net energy exporter for a year or two because, yeah, we had the COVID stuff, and we slashed our industry, but... Uh, give me a break. If you were saying that back then, you were dead wrong, Chris. Dead wrong. Shale oil wasn't some permanent bequeathment that we could turn on. And it it is. The world with all this oil forever. It was like a little flash in the pan. Not forever, but hundreds of years. Retirement party it was 10 beautiful years of resource, maybe 15, 20 if we managed it well, that we could have used for any purposes we wanted. And we should have. That would have been a great time. Take that last oil and gas out of the ground. Do something awesome with it. Build Central those planners fallacy. You really always wanted. Make sure that your soils are healthy. Put in the high-speed infrastructure and rail system. Reinvigorate our barge system so that we can move things very efficiently from A to B. That's what we should have done with that, right? Instead, we threw it into the project, such as it is, of growing our economy because that's what's important: uh, is to grow the economy. I think we, we could have both grown the economy energy in legit ways and made reasonable investments in our future. Like I said, it didn't have to be this way, but we made bad decisions. Um, and so, looking at this chart again here. This has a lot of really critical information baked in. And if you understand this chart, you will understand where the future is going. You will understand decisions that you might want to consider making today that will help put your family and yourself in a better position for tomorrow. I agree. What this says is that all of this economic growth that we saw before here, so whether we're taking a snapshot, which is like this for 2017, or we're looking over time, all of that growth in the economy going from, say, $27 trillion of real GDP back there all the way up to $75 trillion, that all happened because... This was happening. Now the question everybody should have at the tip of their tongues is, well, what happens if that... Not necessarily, guys. Remember, I said this is mainly explained by population growth. It doesn't happen anymore. And what happens worse if we have that 
as the rationale for... And he, remember, he said available energy, right? Well, this oil and natural gas, that wasn't available back here. And nuclear wasn't available. But now, you know, as we make more of it available, which we're not near running out of oil, um, he's dead wrong about, <laughs> about the U.S. oil industry. But um, the, yes, we grow and we get more available energy as needed. And most of this is des described by population growth. A money system that's either expanding or very unhappily collapsing. That's the difficulty we're in. That's the predicament we're currently in. It's why I believe you're hearing about things like central bank digital currencies, about uh, all these efforts to get us under digital ID and passport control is because other smart people are seeing this and they know, oh, this is going to be a heck of a management problem. And they have a choice. Do we tell people about it's not a management problem, man. <laughs> Are you a central planner or not a central planner? Um, no, it's not a management problem. Uh, let the free market deal with it. The free market is perfectly capable. It knows way more than you. It's way more competent. It knows exactly what it's doing. Um, and it's not a management problem. With this and be honest and trust in the good nature of good people? Well, no, let's lie. I have to lie because I think the thinking goes that they don't trust themselves, so they don't trust you. That's the difference. I mean, I, I trust you. I'm going to give you this. Prices don't lie. And that, that's another thing. Like he talked about manipulation. So what he would say to that is, oh, but everything's manipulated. I told you everything's manipulated. Um, everything is manipulation. Um, no, prices don't lie. You can't manip. Yeah, you can manipulate the market in the short term. And you can centrally plan in the short term, too, in certain things, like very narrow things. Like uh, you can want to build aircraft. And so in World War II, you can centrally plan the economy to um, build a bunch of aircraft, a bunch of weapons for a short period of time, right? World War II, we were involved with that from 41 to 45. Um, so that was a very narrow thing that they could do. You could build a bunch of airplanes, but you can't control the unintended consequences or the negative externalities or the externalities in general. So... Um, the it's just kind of crazy to think that you can centrally plan things and think you know what the market is the prices are the market and they'll tell you everything you need to know this information i'm going to trust you're going to do the right stuff with it they don't trust you they don't trust me you can tell right that's why they lie all the time and they hide and they never seem to tell the truth about anything it's because it's they fundamentally think that if they told you the truth that you'd freak out you might um and and that they're a little party would end i guess i don't know or they just don't trust people and it's a projection of their own inner weaknesses upon the rest of the world uh, whatever the psychology is i know that that they know about this and i know for instance when i've done work and uh had opportunities to interact with people who are very highly placed within the chinese system they got this like this was five six years ago i was talking about this with them and they were looking at me like i was a dummy they're like yeah we know that yeah we know that right we don't talk about this much in in the united states and i think much of europe and it's yeah, we know that we got it centrally planned. Don't worry about it. It's going to really bite us. China is busy orienting itself as if this chart is true, as if they know that the future belongs to those who have access to the resources. You know that whole bird in the hand, right? China gets it, and that's why they're building the Belt and Road Initiative all across Asia. That's why when the United States beat a retreat from Afghanistan, leaving all that tasty hardware behind, military hardware, China now got a number of amazing things out of that deal. Access to some of the last best known mineral deposits in the world, because Afghanistan had not been in a position to prosecute those 
from a corporate standpoint for the past 20 years because they've been occupied. Now China sails oh, in with its no. magic checkbook no, and no. they've got access to the most beautiful known or I'm sorry, but the U.S.'s magical checkbook is way bigger than China's. Um, that's a ridiculous argument. But those are uneconomical natural resources. You know, we've known for millennia that Afghanistan has had natural resources like that, but it's just uneconomical to take them out. Uh, like I said earlier, if there hasn't been a city in a certain area for all of human history, especially in Eurasia, Central Asia, most likely there's a good reason why there's not a city there, right? And if you try to centrally plan a city somewhere like that, uh, it's going to fail. There's a reason why. Um, and same with Afghanistan. There's a reason why those resources were not extracted. It's because they're uneconomical to extract, period. You can't get around that argument. The Belt and Road is just a big, fat waste of money. You can't, uh, you know, turn crap into diamonds. It just doesn't work. And <laughs> there's a reason we left that, those, uh, uh, all that military equipment over there too. I mean, I think it might have been slightly by accident, but it's going to work out because they're going to destabilize that region. Just wait till the Muslims find out and plan and plot against what the Chinese did to the Muslims living in China, the Uyghurs. Just wait for that to happen. Deposit for copper left that I'm aware of in the world, other valuable minerals, and a landline to Tajikistan where there's you know major gas reserves and all that. So, so China's already operating as if that story I'm telling you about where we are in this energy story is real, and they get it, and they're not confused by it. And so I'm confused why we're confused by it. We already went through this thing with the Soviet Union, man. You can centrally plan whatever you want. You're going to fail. And it's going to blow up in your face. China thinks they can centrally plan, but they can't. It's going to blow up in their face. Why, why my country seems to you know, be, be stuck on that. So at any rate, this chart again explains a lot. And the other thing you could draw from this is to notice there's a couple of subtleties in here that are really important. Notice here that, well, maybe about 1840 or something, that's where coal really starts to come on. Don't underestimate how hard it's going to be. It's not one of those things we just sort of like think it and it happens, right? It's not, it's not, a, it's not a willpower issue. It's a capital issue. And it's an energy um, sufficiency and density issue. So going back, where's all this go? Um, by the way, many in the world still want that good life that the United States have. I, this really shocked me when I came across this. This is energy use per person in Africa versus in black, a typical American refrigerator. So the per person yearly energy consumption um, of somebody in Ghana, Senegal, Kenya, Nigeria, Tanzania, or Ethiopia, way over there on the left, is uh, less and sometimes far less than just a, a refrigerator. Refrigerator makes my life awesome. I love having non-spoiled food cold all the time. Uh, it's an amazing thing, but um, a lot of the world does not yet have that benefit, and they'd like to have that benefit, and I don't blame them. Um, so the competition for the remaining... Okay, so let's go back to that chart. Um, yeah, great, wonderful. Everybody wants a refrigerator. Um, but... Look, it's not my doing, it's not our doing, it's nobody's doing that Africa is extremely expensive to build up, right? The, uh, the cost of living, the cost of infrastructure, say, and infrastructure maintenance in Africa is super, super high relative to the United States. So you can build up infrastructure in the United States for 
one-tenth of the cost and it will give you triple the output and now you're gonna now you should ask where are you gonna invest that money where is that infrastructure going to be built it's going to be built in the US and even if it's equally built in the US and Africa say it's not going to be as maintained in Africa and they eventually will fall back behind and this is not a race issue this is a geographic issue I mean just this chart alone there you know those American refrigerators include African Americans that own these refrigerators. So it's not a race issue. It's a geographic issue. Period. You can't snap your fingers and make some place economically viable. I don't know why that's in people's heads. So uh, that's it for this one, guys. Um, just to wrap up, the whole thing is peak oil. Peak oil is very far from happening. And also there is an air of Malthusianism and also central planning in this, this analysis. So once again, I really appreciate uh, Chris's content. Uh, I think it's, you know, um, he has a great community. He has a great idea about more homesteading and, and more sustainable living and, and things of that nature, which uh, is very appealing to a lot of people and very valuable uh, community to have. He has a very thriving community. He's a well-spoken, smart guy. But look, all of his economic arguments here are flawed. There are no independent variables in the economy. Uh, available energy and GDP are equalities. They're it's an identity. They're the same thing. That's why it's a straight line because you're measuring the same thing. And um, we're nowhere near having a peak in oil uh, production capacity. Um, lastly, I will say that there is going to be a massive global recession, but I go back to my very first uh, question that I raised on this podcast is where, how, and how much. And I do not think that this is anywhere near the end for the United States. Um, and it's nowhere near the beginning of some, uh, super managed Eurasian uh, economy, okay, uh, empire. It's not going to be that way because central planning doesn't work. Just let people put capital. I mean, capital will go where it's most valuable. Um, so you might as well not even try to centrally plan this because capital is going to go where it goes uh, to get the best return. But anyway, that's it, guys. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Chris, for uh, being a good sport and letting me use this. And I will catch you guys on the next one.